Well, good, good Sunday morning, everyone. It's good to be with you. It's good to be worshiping together. And it's good to be sharing the Word of God as well. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that you continually call us to yourself and that we have the assurance from your word that uh, our Savior is able to save completely all those who draw near to you uh, through him because you ever live to pray for us. And so we thank you for your constant prayer and intercession on our behalf. We thank you for the constant and continual work of your Holy Spirit to conform us and to shape us into the image and likeness of Christ, the various circumstances we experience, Father, are part of this process of being renewed and transformed on a day-by-day basis. And those experiences, Father, whether they be ones of joy or trial, whether they bring us happiness or tears, we know and trust wholeheartedly in your promise that everything we experience has been ordained and is ordained by you for our good and for your glory. We would ask, O Lord God, that you would speak a word of encouragement and hope this morning from this word in 1 Peter, that we would take it to heart, that we would apply it, uh, and that we would see, O Lord God, the many and various ways in which you are at work in our lives through the challenges and difficulties we experience as we pursue and seek peace in the name of Christ as we pursue him above all things. So, Father, we pray that you would bless now the preaching of your word. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever gone through particular uh, seasons in life where um, you've done all the right things. You've made all of the preparation. You have followed all of the proper steps. You have done the good thing. You've done the right thing. And yet it seems life is still hard and uh, people are still mistreating you and and not giving you the honor or respect that you would expect from that. Uh, I remember in in seminary uh, when our money was extremely tight um, and Jill was working very hard. I had a part-time job. uh, and But as the expression goes, there was always more month left at the end of the paycheck and uh, then there was this uh, amazing convergence of our car, our only car needing repairs, rent being due, our health insurance being due, tuition being all at the same time. And I remember at those moments, um, even knowing that you know, God had led us there, I would look at Jill and said, tell me again why we're doing this. Uh, and then when we moved to North Dakota, you know, we were 2,000 miles from friends and family. It was a, a new culture in some ways. It was certainly a new community. We were trying to get used to the customs of a farming and ranching community, very, very tightly knit. Um, I was learning how to be a pastor, you know, preparing sermons, doing Bible studies, making visits to hospitals and homes and things like that, and also trying to raise a family. And, uh, and there were times when we would feel so isolated and alienated out there that, again, we would look at one another and say, you know, tell me again why we're doing this. And then uh, lastly, the last example is when we, we bought our home in Canada, we discovered that water was seeping into the basement. So we spent one entire summer with a trench dug around our house, uh, a pile of dirt and gravel in our driveway, enjoying the, uh, the pleasures of home ownership. As some of you who own homes know. And again, uh, we would ask, why? <laughs> tell me again why we're doing this. 
if you've ever asked yourself that question, if you've ever thought that question, if you've ever asked God that question, then you have some sense of what Peter's audience may have been experiencing. If you've never asked that question, then consider yourself blessed and be ready for the moment that when you do. Because when you ask yourself that question, you can turn to 1 Peter and you can read in here his instruction to a group of people who are spiritual exiles from their own culture because of their faith in Christ, who are doing everything in their power with the help of the Holy Spirit to do good, to do the right thing, and are still being mistreated for it. Life still not going in a way that is favorable to them. Peter's answer to the question, tell me again why we're doing this, is very simple and straightforward. It, it starts way back at the beginning of his letter. We're doing this, he says, because we have been called to be a holy people, and holy people live holy lives. And they live holy lives by following Jesus' example. And Peter knows this from his own experience, that when you follow Jesus, that when you do good, people will treat you unfairly. It, it does happen. But to keep us from becoming discouraged about this, Peter has already reminded us of two very important things. In chapter 2, verse 21, he reminds us that Jesus himself suffered for doing good, thereby leaving us an example that we would follow in his steps. And then in, in chapter 3, verse 12, he also reminds us that even when we suffer, this quote from Psalm 34 comes into play, that the Lord's eyes are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. And that, that verse is going to become key to understanding what is going to happen and what he's saying in verses 13 through 17. This section, which really began back in chapter 2, when Peter says in chapter 2, keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, he's describing what that conduct looks like and then what will happen as a result of that conduct. That any time you suffer for doing good, and you ask God, tell me again why I'm doing this, tell me again why I'm following Jesus, the answer will come back, he has called you to be holy, and holy people lead holy lives. And sometimes when holy people lead holy lives, they suffer because of it. Nevertheless, Peter would remind us that holy people live holy lives by following Jesus' example. So in breaking down the, these verses, 13 to 17, the, the pattern we're going to follow here, the outline we're going to look at is very simple. Holy people suffer for doing good, but they're blessed by God. Holy people know it's better to fear God than to fear people, and holy people learn to accept God's suffering as his will even when they do good. So now before we move on, if that's our outline, there are two things that we need to get uh, understood and, maybe, and, and things I need to make clear. What do we mean by suffering and what do we mean by doing good? So doing good we're going to define simply as any behavior that conforms to God's will, glorifies Jesus Christ, and um, contributes to the well-being of our neighbor. So doing good, it, it, it conforms to God's will, glorifies Christ, contributes to the well-being of our neighbor. Suffering, although it's not on the screen, suffering, there's a, a wonderful book by um, J.I. Packer called Rediscovering Holiness. And in one of the chapters in that book, Packer defines suffering from the point of view of the one who's suffering. 
So you're in a situation where things are not going well and you're suffering. And so he says, in the mind of the sufferer, says Packer, suffering is defined simply as getting what you do not want while wanting what you do not get. Right? So it's, suffering is getting what you do not want while wanting what you do not get. Because when our assumption is, if you're a good citizen, if you're a good neighbor, if you're a, a good and honest employee, a hard worker, if you're a good wife and a good husband, you don't expect that people will mistreat you. You don't expect that people will do your harm. That's the whole point of what Peter says in verse 13. Like, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing good? Generally, the answer to that question is no one. I mean, who's going to harm you for doing the right thing? But, he says, if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Peter's a realist. He knows that even when we do good, we may incur suffering. We may not get what we want and not want what we get. And so, while we shouldn't expect to be harmed or treated unfairly because we're doing good, Peter lets us know that anyone who follows Jesus, that's going to be the pattern. And that's why he quotes uh, from Psalm 34, because verse 12 there in 1 Peter 3 is the lead-in to this section. When you suffer for doing good, understand that the eyes of the Lord are upon you and his ears are open to your prayer. God doesn't turn his back on you. God hasn't suddenly become blind to your circumstances or deaf to your pleas for help. He is always attentive. There is a strong sense in what, what Peter says here, in quoting from Psalm 34 and then leading into this section, there's a very strong sense in which he is saying something very similar to what the Apostle Paul says at the end of Romans 8. It's an extensive quote, but I'm going to read it to you because it's key to understanding the kind of endurance and steadfastness that Peter is encouraging us to have. Paul writes in Romans 8, this wonderful passage, says, in verse 31 starts, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ is, Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So from our perspective, when it seems as if we are being killed, from our perspective, when it seems as if we're being slaughtered, Peter and Paul would say, lift your eyes off your circumstances and place them squarely upon the one who has led you into those circumstances, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, God your Heavenly Father, and the Holy Spirit. 
know then that even in the midst of these very unpleasant, trying circumstances, these challenging moments and seasons in your life, when it seems as if God is not rewarding you for the faith that you have entrusted to him, Peter says you were blessed. Because there is nothing and nobody that can separate you from the love of God in Christ. From your perspective, you see, it seems as if the world is against you. God is simply saying, here is now an opportunity for you to experience more of my presence, more of my love, more of my provision, a deeper and closer intimacy. My eyes are upon you. My ears are open to your prayers. In fact, I may have brought you into this very moment so that you would see me more clearly and pray with a greater sense of urgency. Sometimes the things that we suffer because of our faith in Christ are meant to arouse us from our complacency. It's what revival is the stuff of. Revival is simply sleepy saints who have become complacent in their faith, God awakening them through trials and difficulties and moments that just make us wonder, tell me again why we're doing this. Because like Jesus, we may and some will suffer for harm for doing good. But because we're always under God's sovereign protection, nothing and nobody can separate us from his love. When uh, I was growing up in Long Island in the house across the street, um, this couple had an only child, and they had this beautiful German shepherd named Lance. And their son, Richie, would uh, ride up and down the sidewalk on his little tricycle, and Lance was on the steps. You know, the steps are like five feet above the sidewalk, and Lance would just watch Richie go back and forth. And I remember watching one day out my, my front door, and the mailman came. And as he walked toward Richie, you know, toward the house to deliver mail, Lance didn't bark. He just stood up, walked down the steps, and he placed himself squarely between the mailman and little Richie. And he stayed there the whole time until the mailman moved on to the next house. And when anyone else would walk down the street toward that little boy, that dog would come off his steps and he would just put himself squarely, just letting whoever knew, that's my, that's my boy, I'm protecting him. God has that same attitude toward us. He's watching, but he's not inattentive. His ears are alert to our prayers. He watches over his people the way that Psalm 121 describes him. He neither slumbers nor sleeps. His ears are always open to our prayers, especially when we suffer. And when we follow Jesus' example, when we entrust ourselves uh, to God who judges justly, I'm reminded of the, the words of the, of the old hymn, How Firm a Foundation. There's that one stanza in that hymn that says, The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. So when things go awry, when things don't go the way that we would expect, the way that we want, understand that you are not abandoned, you are not deserted. God is with you in the midst of that. Because this spirit-inspired, Christ-centered, God-certain confidence that Peter has is expressed in the very next verse. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, 
you will be blessed. That's straight out of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 10 and 12, when Jesus is speaking at the end of the Beatitudes, the last two Beatitudes in verses 10 and 11 are these. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You think when Jesus is saying this, he's not saying this to the, the cultural and social and economic elites. He's saying this to fishermen. He's saying this from the, from the standpoint of the elites, relatively uneducated people. The, the, the hoi polloi, as, as some would say, right? The common folk, the, the people who buy the bleacher seats at, at uh, Yankee Stadium, or the nosebleed seats at the Knicks game, the folks who can barely get by in life. And he elevates them by saying that when you suffer for my account, you're being treated the exact same way as the prophets were treated. You are in elite company by virtue of whatever you endure for my sake. And Peter, this fisherman, speaks from experience because we know if you go into the, the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 5, when Peter and the other apostles are dragged before the, the Jewish ruling council because they have healed a man who was born lame and began preaching another strong and powerful sermon in Acts 4, they tell the apostle, we have warned you not ever to speak in the name of Jesus again. And they beat them, and then they send them out. And Luke tells us this. They left the presence of the council, not with their hung head low, not cowering in fear, not licking their wounds, but rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. And every day, <laughs> they went back. Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus Christ. So they willingly went out because they understood what Jesus was saying there in the Sermon on the Mount. But understand this, and we, this needs to be clear as well, that not every form of suffering is going to involve physical harm or physical abuse. Some suffering will take the form of being shunned, being overlooked for promotion at work, being left out of that inner ring of friends in high school. You know, when everyone else is invited to that particular gathering or party and you're not, and you know you're not, and everybody makes you aware that you're not, you just don't fit in, that's a bit of suffering because they understand, well, we don't want that person here because, you know, they believe in Jesus or they go to church or things like that. So not every form of suffering is physical. It can take the form of being ignored or mocked or insulted or even canceled because of your faith in Christ. Nevertheless, says Peter, one thing is sure, that whatever form of suffering we experience, we're blessed. How? We're blessed in two ways. One, rather than sinking to the low ground of those who would insult us, we have, with the Spirit's help, risen above and have followed Jesus' example. The second thing is that we have also, by refusing to 
revile when reviled, insult when insulted, and strike back when struck, is that we bring joy to our Heavenly Father. We please Him because that's exactly what Jesus did. That's the point of Hebrews 1, uh, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, where Jesus endures the cross, scorning its shame. The writer says, why? For the joy that was set before him. What joy? There's the joy of hearing from his heavenly Father, well done. Because your suffering has resulted in the salvation of many. Our suffering won't result in the salvation of many, but it will result in praise being given to God. And, as Peter points out later on, the shame of those who would insult us because of Christ. How foolish they will appear for insulting us and mocking us for doing good, for preserving life, for promoting life, for telling the truth, for, as Amos would say, doing justice, showing mercy, as Micah would say as well, and walking humbly before others. Like Paul, Peter simply wants us to do what is necessary for every Christian, which is to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You just press on doing good because nothing and nobody can separate us from the love of God in Christ. We always talk about, or if you, if you I'm a sports guy, I like watching sports, and uh, sports teams always talk about like a player taking one for the team. Like he plays in extreme pain, particularly in a championship game, in a championship series. Some of you may not remember, you, it was before your time, but I can remember 1969, uh, if you're a sports fan, you know uh, New York Knickerbockers uh, hero Willis Reed passed away last week. Willis Reed was a center for the New York Knicks. Um, in Game 7 of the 1969 NBA Finals, Willis Reed was playing on one leg. He had uh, injured, I think, the hamstring in, in, in his right leg, and he was hobbling. They weren't sure he was going to play the game, and he was hobbling on the court. And uh, he was six foot nine. His opponent, Will Chamberlain, was seven foot one. And uh, when they threw the ball up, you know, to start the game, Willis just stood there and, you know, Chamberlain swatted the ball. But hobbling down the court, Reed took the first two shots for the Knicks. Both went in. That was it. The game was over. Because he said his goal, he was suffering, but he was suffering for the good of the team. He had his eye on something that was greater than himself. And Peter says, when we suffer... It's easy to think, I'm not getting what I want, and I'm not wanting what I'm getting. And we become very individualistic, and we are pulled away from the body. And we begin to become very self-centered. Peter says, understand that your suffering means that you're part of another, a larger community, and you're aiming and working towards something that is far more permanent than a, a championship trophy. But it is the, the ultimate and eternal approval of a loving and good God. So holy people suffer for doing good, but they're blessed by God. The blessing need not be material. In fact, many times it isn't. Many times it's that sense, that inner satisfaction, and if I can put it in other terms, it's that, that sense that you get. Uh, I, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, whether it's in prayer or reading the Bible or in just sharing the gospel with someone, you just sense God's presence. It's, it's indescribable in some ways, but you just know. There's just, there's just this imminence and presence. That's a blessing by not turning away, but entering into 
that moment, that season of suffering with joy and gladness. So we will suffer for doing, uh, for doing good, but when we do, Peter says, know that it's better then to fear God than to live in fear of people. No, have no fear of them, he writes in verse 14, the second half. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect or reverence, or some translations will say fear. We'll talk about that in a moment. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. This, Peter starts this section with a quote from Isaiah 8, 12 and 13. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. That's his paraphrase of Isaiah 8. It's very interesting why he does it, because the context of Isaiah 7 and 8 have a lot to do with why Peter quotes this particular verse. If you read through, not now, but when you get home, go through Isaiah 7 and 8, and you'll see there that Uh, Judah, the southern kingdom, is under threat of attack by the northern kingdom of Israel and their ally Aram, uh, part of Syria, what is now modern-day Syria. And they were threatening to attack Judah. They were going to depose King Ahaz, the king of Judah, and replace him with a puppet king. And actually, this filled Ahaz and it filled all the inhabitants of Judah with terror and dread. And God sends Isaiah to King uh, Ahaz This is in the section in which we get the whole promise about the virgin shall be with child and all of that. Uh, And he sends uh, um, Isaiah to Ahaz to tell him two things. One, that the Lord would save Judah. And two, that the Lord would send another nation, Syria, uh, to defeat Israel and Aram, and they would not set foot in the city. And this is the message that Isaiah delivers in Isaiah 8, 12, and 13. Do not call conspiracy all that this people call conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Here's why. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy, let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. So you bring that forward into Peter's audience, you bring that forward into our time, rather than cower in fear, of what our enemies might do, Peter says we must regard or honor or set apart Christ as holy in our hearts by letting him be our fear, letting him be our dread. Fearing God is more important than being afraid of what might happen. And believe me, as one who has at times lived in the world of what if, you ever been there? What if? What if this happens? What if that happens? What if this, if if I went back and and I have sort of made a mental catalog of all the times I have said what if in terms of like some dreadful thing, not much of those what ifs were ever fulfilled. I had a pastor friend one time who said, uh, he, he advised somebody who was living in fear like this, and he said, I want you to write out on a piece of paper everything that you're afraid of, everything that you are fearful will happen to you in the next six months. And at the end of that six months, open that letter and then read it and see if it all came true. And his fellow did that. And he wrote, you know, I'm going to lose my, lose my job, I'm going to lose my house, I'm going to lose my wife, lose my health. Six months later, opens it. None of it happened. 
So you can live in fear of what might happen, or you can live in fear of what God has already done for us in Christ. You can set apart Christ as Lord. We must worship him, says Peter, as holy, because God has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, and seated him at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that can be named in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So where is your fear? Of whom are you afraid? You read Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom then shall I be afraid? You read Psalm 56, where he talks about fearing God. What can mortal man do to me? Go to Psalm 42 and start with verse 1 of Psalm 42. Like the deer pants for the water, my soul pants for you, O God. And then the psalmist says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. Let me tell you from my own experience, as one who at times has lived more in fear than in faith, it is far better to live in faith and fear of God than it is in fear of the what if. And we are to do that in the heart because the heart is the control center of everything we do. That's why Jesus would say, out of the abundance of the heart, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Because what originates in the heart eventually becomes lifestyle. So if what originates in the heart, if, if, what is, if faith replaces fear, what flows out is a fearless lifestyle. So to be clear... Peter is saying something here that is completely counterintuitive to us and very absolute that for a Christian to fear anything or anyone more than God is sin. Let that just sort of settle for a moment. For a Christian to fear anything or anyone more than God is sin. We must not be afraid of what unbelievers might do to harm us. I watch the news like you do. I read the news. And I'm, I'm struck by just at times a sense of desperation. And I have to remind myself, I even say it out loud, what Jesus is Lord. <laughs> right? this, this is going to pass. This is, uh, this is, this, Jesus is sovereign over this. Why must we not fear? Because if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, either you believe that or you don't. It's as simple as that. But if the things that have been written have been written for our instruction, Paul isn't writing that. If God is for us, who can be against us? He's not writing that to be rhetorically flourished. He's not writing that so that we'd be quoting, oh, what a wonderful sentiment. He says, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not in Christ also give us all things graciously? So here we are in the midst of whatever circumstance, and I know some of you are going through some deep waters right now. And you are concerned, if not fearful, about what the future holds. Or perhaps that you are where you are because you have somehow offended God. And if that's the case, confess your sin, get right with God, and move forward with Him. But if not, if you have done everything in accordance with His will and still find yourself in a tight spot with a circumstances are constraining you. You're not in the wide open place the way the psalmist would describe. You find yourself in a boxed canyon. Understand that if God is for you, who can be against you? That even that boxed canyon, even that narrow space, 
is designed to bring out of you what you fear so that it might be replaced by faith. And Jesus himself said as much. In Luke 12, 4 and 5, Jesus is speaking and he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That's why we fear God. Because only God has the absolute power to save or to condemn. No one and nothing in this world has that authority. In fact, the only thing, it's like Luther in that great hymn, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. So there's a strong encouragement to put our hope and faith in God, to regard and honor and set apart Christ as holy. So that's the question to ask, isn't it? Do you regard Christ as holy in your heart? Are you, are you prepared and can you make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in you? And I'm not talking about being dragged before some court, you know, or you know, testify or, you know, back before, you know, a fiery squad. I'm talking about in conversations over the dinner table with relatives who aren't believers. And the topic of Christianity and Christ pops up. Or you're at work and during a break time and a co-worker asks you and challenges you and gets in your face. They're on one side of the social divide. You're on, you're on the, 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 the more biblical understanding. Whether it's sexuality, whether it's anything to do with gender issues, whether it has anything to do with abortion. Suddenly you are now in a position, how do you defend? Are you able to do that? Are you able to explain the gospel in a way that is understandable? And say, well, you know, when God created the world, he called everything good. Man rebelled against God and sinned. And God's remedy for our sin is sending his son to die in our place. So that as we trust in him, we understand that not only will we be saved, but one day the entire world will be renewed by faith in Christ. Put that, that's the gospel. Can you do that? It's one of the aims that we have. It's one of the visions that we have for all of us here at Maranatha. That we would grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we all would have an understanding of what is the gospel so that we can live it, so that we can share it, so that we can proclaim it in a confident way. Even knowing that we may suffer harm for doing that. And to do it, Peter says, with gentleness. Gentleness toward those with whom we disagree. Gentleness with those who see it from the opposite side. And it's hard to sort of get into their eyes and to see the world. You hear some of the things that the folks that are antithetical to Christianity say about Christians in the Bible. And you think, where does that come from? And our, our reaction is to get angry and to sort of become snarky, and, but not, don't do that, says Peter. Do it with gentleness. And do it with fear, not of them, but of God. That you are able to respond in such a way that your understanding of the sovereignty, the authority, and the power of God is honored by your response. Think of the way that Jesus responded. There were times, yes, he got angry. You read Matthew 23, Jesus says some things, and you go, Oof, I don't know if I would have said it that way, but he did. But there, so there's a time to be firm. There's a time to be straightforward and so forth. But there's also a time to speak with gentleness and reverence for God that presents the gospel 
Yes, that's, in a, uh, that's challenging. Yes, that's firmly standing squarely on the truth. But in such a way that is also, if I could use the word, winsome. So Peter wants us to be able to make sure that our words are, are seasoned with grace as with salt. So we will always have an answer for those who ask about the hope. Or that hope is Peter's favorite synonym for, for faith. Can you do that? It's one of the reasons why we have stressed becoming involved in, in discipleship groups and even reaching out to connect groups and why we have a lot of people who are doing discipleship, reading the Bible with one another. We want everyone to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And I think Maranatha does a good job at that, but we want to continue growing that. We want to expand that and to deepen it and to broaden it and to get even better at it. And then lastly, uh, Peter talks about holy people learning to accept suffering as God's will when they do good. And here we come to it. Right? That Peter connects here. Unapologetically, he connects our suffering for doing good to the will of God. But note, he says, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. That's an important if. Because in the, in the sense of what Peter's getting at here, God controls the timing he controls the type. He controls the amount and the duration of suffering that we endure. Should that be his will? Some, some believers may experience more abuse and even physical harm than others. And when that happens, there's, we have verses that encourage us in those moments. James 1, 2 through 4 the brother of the Lord writes, Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect or mature, complete, lacking in nothing. Peter has said something very similar to that at the beginning of his letter, in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1. In this you greatly rejoice, so now for a little while... You may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though test refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So when, when, we're, when we're tested, when our faith is tried, when we suffer, we read it from 1 Corinthians 10. That even in that moment, God is not giving us more um, than we are able uh, to endure through trusting in Christ. And even when he does give us what we perceive to be more than we can endure, he makes a way of escape for us because his eyes are on the righteous, his ears are attentive to our prayer. He has plugged us into a community where we can rely on for help and assistance and support to bear us up during those times and also the reason why we go through suffering as a matter of God's will, the precedent for this is set way back in the Old Testament. One of my, one of my uh, uh, favorite verses, I have a whole list, maybe you do. Deuteronomy 8.2. Moses in Deuteronomy is preparing Israel to enter the promised land. He's reviewing all of the events from the crossing, from Passover, crossing of the Red Sea, right up until this very moment. He reviews why God let them wander in the, made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And Moses says this, before they entered the promised land, 40 years in the wilderness, Moses says this, 
encouraging them, when they get into the promised land, he says, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So when we go through seasons of testing, it's for the very purpose of God allowing us to see what is in our heart, whether we keep his commandments or not. But here's the good news of the New Testament, of the New Covenant. Even should we fail to keep his commandments, we have a Savior who has kept them. So even in those moments when we give in to fear, when we don't say the thing that needs to be said, when we retreat rather than advance in, in faith, rather than as Peter did after he denied Jesus a third time and wept bitterly, or, or Judas being gripped with so much remorse he killed himself. Those moments when you feel that you have failed, God says, remember the cross. And there, in what Christ has done, find your courage, your hope, your forgiveness, and your steadfastness. Because he did not waver. Though you may, remember this, that if it should be God's will that you suffer, we have a good shepherd who knows his sheep by name, who knows what we need, when we need it. He knows what it, what it means to suffer for doing good, that he is our savior, that he is our great high priest, that he is not only able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but as the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 7, he is able to save completely all those who draw near to God through him because he ever leads to pray for them. He ever lives to pray for us. If you have not suffered for your faith, consider yourself blessed and continue to do good. Please don't feel as if somehow you are not living up to God's standard because you haven't suffered for righteousness yet. Consider yourself blessed, but if you have, look to Christ and remember these things about our Savior and trust wholly and fully in Him. Remembering, too, that if God is for us, ultimately nothing and no one can separate us from His love. Really, that's the message of the book of Job in the Old Testament. Satan had to ask God's permission to inflict all of the pain and injury upon Job and his family. Because God's objectives, because God's motives in allowing suffering are the polar opposite of Satan. Satan's object in suffering is to separate us from God, to cause us to curse him and deny him. <clears throat> when, uh, but God's motives are to draw us to himself. There was a, a season in, uh, in our lives uh, when, when Jill, uh, things were going badly uh, for one reason or another, I won't get into it, but, but, but Jill, I was, um, she was physically, her back was hurting her and, and some other things, so I would, I would have to put her shoes on in the morning and tie her sneakers. And she would always have these theological discussions and questions with me like five minutes before she has to go to work. So she asked me one day as I'm putting, tying her shoes, a really challenging question. So, she said, <laughs> very matter of fact, so, why didn't God kill Job's wife? He took everything else from Job, 
I don't know, guys. Like, David, how do you answer that question? It wasn't a trap, but it was like, humana, humana, humana. And just like that, the answer came. So that when God restored Job, his wife would bear witness to the goodness of God nevertheless. So your spouse may be going through something you can't explain, nor even want. But you are there to bear witness, to pray for your spouse, to pray for your friend, to pray for your child, to pray for your parent. So that when they are restored through that season of suffering, which Peter talks about in chapter 5, right? That after you've gone through this season of suffering, God will exalt you. You're there to bear witness to that. To be a witness, a second witness. They the first saying, I, God brought me through this and here I am. Still standing on the rock. Still standing on my faith. And you're there to say, yes, because I watched, I saw, I walked with, I prayed for, I prayed with, I wept with. And oh, we rejoice in what God has now done. There is a, a, <clears throat> an element that holy people must live holy lives. And when we live holy lives, we will suffer for it. And those sufferings will take various forms, as Peter tells us in chapter 1. And I'm drawn, and I, I shared this at our staff meeting, and I'll end with this. Um, you know that I love the Puritans, and I, and I read uh, a devotional that has a collection of Puritan writings. So forgive me, it's an extended quote, but it, it just fits with what Peter is saying here. This is from um, a Puritan named John Flavel. This is from a collection of his works. Uh, and it just, it's appropriate for uh, this text. Flavel writes this, In times of danger... Our heart is so prone to sinking fears. The sin of unbelief is the real cause for most distracting and afflictive fears. If men would dig deep to the root of their fears, they would certainly find unbelief there. The less faith, the more fear. All the skill in the world can never cure us of this disease of fear until God cures us of our unbelief. This sin in God's own people is the cause and fountain of their fears. It is the office of faith to strengthen the soul with the invisible things of the world to come. This encourages us to face the fears and dangers of the present world. If faith is weakened in the soul, and if invisibles seem uncertain, invisibles the only realities, no wonder we are scared and frightened when these visible and sensible comforts are endangered. A man is afraid to stand his ground if he is not thoroughly persuaded the ground he stands on is firm. No wonder that men tremble when it seems they feel the ground shake and reel under them. But the divine promises give us a refuge from our fears. They fortify a Christian in evil times through their dependence upon God for protection. Unbelief robs the soul of comfort and support and fills the heart with anxiety and fear. Unbelief places our treasured interests in our own hands and so fills the heart with distracting fears. But, <laughs> but believers have committed their souls and all that is precious and valuable to them into the hands of God by faith and putting them into such safe hands that he enjoy quietness and peace. More faith, less fear. We stand on solid ground all the time. The rock who is Christ, who will not, never, 
they'll never, they'll never forsake. You think about that and hold fast to him because he holds fast to you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we confess there are times when our fear is greater than our faith. And so we pray for the help of your Holy Spirit to have more faith, less fear, more trust, less uncertainty, more comfort, less anxiety, more peace, less worry. Strength, O oh Lord God, that comes only from your Holy Spirit and courage to hope, O oh Lord God, is the root of our desire to serve you and to know you. Strengthen our hope, strengthen our faith, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.